let me introduce what I want to talk to you about today um, <clears throat> in this way. I, I struggle um, <clears throat> a lot sometimes to figure out what I'm supposed to preach. And it doesn't happen that often, no more than weekly. <clears throat> um, I have a brother and a brother-in-law who are excellent preachers. Um, I wish I could preach as well as they do. They both um, have to be in therapy if they don't know a good week or more in advance what they're going to do. I wish I could do that, um, but anyway. So rather hastily this morning, we made copies of the Apostles' Creed and gave that to all of you because I want to refer to that today. I've preached through the Apostles' Creed as a series before. I know all of you remember that. Um, <laughs> I know that most, most of us forget. Listen, I forget stuff by the time I get to the parking lot. Um, so, but at any rate, I don't want to speak today on the Apostles' Creed itself, but I want to look at what is behind it. Why did it come into existence? Why do we have it? What's its purpose? And to be honest, I felt like um, considering this, I'm not sure, I, I hope I can make this, with the Lord's help, a decent sermon. Now, explain what I mean. When I was in homiletics class in seminary, homiletics is the study and the practice of preaching sermons. Our professor made a statement I've never forgotten. He said, vow never to preach a so what sermon. Meaning, on your way out to the parking lot at the end of the service, could you legitimately be able to say, well, so what? I don't ever want to preach a so what sermon. I hope today doesn't turn out to be a so what sermon. But it'll involve some church history. And I know that maybe some people don't like history. Um, endure it for today and, you know, you'll live. I think every one of us here, to some degree, myself included, we have a completely erroneous picture of the early church. We think that the apostles preached, they evangelized everywhere, Huge crowds received the gospel. Yes, there were the occasional uprisings against, you know, Paul got stoned and thrown into prison and so forth. But generally, we think that the church hit the ground running, I guess. And in the ensuing ages, 
we have a pretty dim picture probably of church history. But we have this idea that it just grew and grew and filled the earth, conquered kingdoms, empires, and it was, it was just one success <clears throat> after the other. And proof of that skewed picture, I think, is the oft-heard statement that we will make. I wish we could get back to the early church. Everybody that starts some new movement within Christianity always labels it an attempt to get back to the early church. I want to get back to the early church, the simplicity of the early church. The error in that is failing to understand the history. Let me put it this way. Um, the church, the early church, including even during the time that the apostles was, were still here, the apostolic age, which is the first century from zero to 100 A.D., was a total mess. The church was always roiled with some controversy, splits, schisms, false teachings, fighting with each other. One bishop would excommunicate the bishop in the next county over. And excommunication, of course, relates, uh, it's become kind of a generic term today, but then it was, you can't take communion. And communion was considered vital. Um, it got carried too far, which was another problem. It got carried so far that communion is your link to God, and if you don't take communion, you can't make it. So then, to excommunicate someone literally was to cut them off from God. And in an extreme case, I, I get to declare, if I won't serve you communion, you're as good as in hell. That's a lot of power to have. Um, I guess suffice it to say, because we don't have uh, an awful lot of time today, things were a mess. Now, I'm going to try to explain some of the background here, some of the things that went on, and I'm, I'm confident that none of my, most of my college, I would think, and seminary professors are no longer on the earth, okay? So I don't have to worry that they might hear me. Um, there's no way in the world that I can say what I want to say and be, um, I hope I'm accurate, but barely. Um, I have to speak in generalities. I have to touch on just little pieces and parts of what was going on um, that the gospel finally survived and got to you and I. Proof, frankly, that this 
that the church of Jesus Christ is totally divine in its origin and continually, continuously till today, <clears throat> superintended by, upheld by, guided by, enlivened by Jesus Christ, the head of the church, through the Holy Spirit, is that it has survived. It's only God that's kept the church here. Now, after the apostolic age, which was roughly, most people think John um, the Apostle died somewhere around A.D. 95. And the apostolic age is a general period of time, but concludes with <clears throat> A.D. 100. Well, the next two to three centuries were major times of formation, upheaval, attacks, both inward and outward. And the, the very life of the church seemed, I suppose, to a human onlooker to be in jeopardy. It, would it even last? There were some issues then, doctrines and so forth, that came up that um, had a lot to do with the formation of the very first major creed. Um, probably the first creed that would be called a baptismal formula, which means something you must agree to and swear allegiance to or you couldn't be baptized okay we generally today whenever we have a baptism or whatever the the apostles creed is in our ritual and unfortunately sometimes i'm to blame for time time's sake we'll cut it out probably 50% of the time, we don't read the Apostles' Creed. Why? Well, first of all, it's only, what, maybe the first beginnings of it, 1,800 years old, um, spells out the core of Christianity. But we got to get out of here so we can beat the Baptist Perkins. You know what I mean? So our priorities are a mess. But at any rate, the first probably simplest Bible statement of faith or creed was Jesus is Lord. I think we could say that's probably the simplest first. Jesus is Lord. Now, Jesus is Lord is a wonderful, simple creed. The problem is it doesn't take very long until people start questioning, well, who Jesus really was. How could he be fully human and fully God at the same time? And what does Lord mean? And wherever you have humans who like to pick everything apart and are arrogant and won't just take something that God said and leave it alone, you end up with controversy 
And so then Jesus is Lord. That little simple three-word creed is insufficient because people work their way around it. So one of the things you can notice about humanity in general, it applies in the world, it applies in politics, it applies in religion. We never, ever subtract. We always add. Creeds get longer and longer. Or take go clear outside of religion. I think the IRS codes is, is 120,000 pages. Um, eventually, they'll probably shrink it down. It's just two pages, maybe one. How much did you make? Send it all in. That's simpler. It wasn't long before confronted with false teachings that the church was forced to come up with creeds that help them determine who's a Christian, who isn't. Who do we allow be a part? Who do we allow to be a minister or a bishop, a presbyter, a pastor, a deacon? How do we handle this? Jesus intentionally did not give an organizational chart to the early church. It had to develop. The creeds had to develop. The statements of faith had to develop as the Holy Spirit helped them rise to the challenge of various attacks, really, subtle or overt, persecution or the, the very cunning, under-the-radar kinds of tweaking of beliefs, tweaking of Scripture, changing of a word here and there, and it doesn't seem to be a problem. Oh, that's a big deal. We can just... I was in a meeting probably 20 years ago with, oh, I don't know, there were 20 of us probably, and it was a commission that we're working on um, statements of faith of do we tweak stuff, government and all that kind of stuff of the denomination. And we were talking about some doctrinal issues. And there was a guy there, um, a pastor who I don't know how he became a pastor because of the, the opinion that he gave. We were talking about doctrine, describing distinctly what does it mean to be converted? What does it, what's the doctrine of sin? What's the doctrine of salvation? What, and he said, you know, I just get so sick of this doctrine stuff. In a nasally tone why can't we just preach Christ and my brother was in that meeting and he fired back at him he said which Christ there are lots of Christs but there's only one biblical one Paul told the Corinthians you have received another Christ. And he said, you have received another gospel. 
and you have received another Holy Spirit. There's the danger. So, unfortunately, if you go back, was this man, this preacher, biblical? Technically, you could say that Philip, when the Holy Spirit sent him to speak to the single person in a chariot, the treasurer for the queen of Sheba, and he's reading in the book of Isaiah, and Philip approaches the chariot, and he says, do you understand what you read? He said, how can I, except, except some man explain it to me? There's the place for pastors and teachers. But if I were God, <laughs> and he understands me, I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> That's dangerous. Now, God is willing to take the risk. And I don't know, of course, God has a fair amount of power. And he can overrule, and he can help us, and he can elevate our, our reason and our, our thinking to a, a place where the truth can be conveyed accurately. But you in you introduce a person between the scripture and a seeker and you got the potential for problems you got the potential for distortion of that word Does that make sense it's a risk that god's willing to take but it's true someone needs to explain the scripture us and God has set that up and given that job to teachers, pastors, so forth. Philip, it says, opened his mouth from that point in the scripture and preached unto him Christ. Okay? So, yeah. Is it right to say, why can't we just preach Christ? Yeah. If you lived about six years after the resurrection but beyond that preach Christ anymore means a thousand different things to a thousand different people so there's the need of putting down what we believe and what we don't believe and creating some guardrails for ourselves one of the earliest challenges and it's already in the New Testament we see evidence of it, especially from Paul. We see evidence from John. It was a, an ancient or earlier heresy, and it was called Gnosticism. Uh, the G, G-N-O-S, um, it means knowledge. Gnosticism, the G is silent, um, taught a couple of radically erroneous things. Can't go into all of it. It's impossible. I rely on what I believe are a couple of well-known historians, church historians of the last couple hundred years. They can't explain it. Gnosticism was a, is a murky kind of a mess, but a couple bad things about it. Um, one is that they taught what's called dualism. 
Spirit is good, matter is evil. Matter includes everything physical, including my body. Spirit, of course, I can't see. Spirit is good, matter is evil. Now, you might sit here and think, Lord, how long is this going to last? Um, when can we get to Perkins? Listen, Gnosticism was a desperate challenge to Christianity because what dualism really taught is a couple of things, and you will recognize dualism, Gnosticism, is alike and well today. In fact, there are churches and pulpits in Gillette, and in every church, every town, that preach certain elements of Gnosticism. Today. Now, if you believe that's an old Greek philosophy notion brought in Plato and so forth uh, to explain the presence of evil, if you have a God, why would he create the mess here? Well, you blame it on the, uh, you blame it on the cookie dough. You blame it on the dough. That's the problem. The baker's not the problem. It's the problem's in the dough because you can't blame evil on a supposedly good creator. So you partially you explain evil by, well, it's in the dough. Okay? Now, so, what's the problem with it? Well, if you carry it out, first of all, it locates sin in the human body, not in the spirit. It's in the body. Therefore, what's the next step? I can never be without sin and sinning in this life. So I look for death to free me. Plato and a lot of the early Greek philosophers called the body the prison of the soul. We can't ever then be righteous, clean, pure-hearted, clean hands and a pure heart, which the Bible tells us, and the Bible's off when it tells us, I require clean hands and a pure heart now, here. What's well, impossible. I live in a matter, a material body. And it's the source of evil. So I can't ever be free from sin. Not in this life. So what do I look for to deliver me from sin? The blood of Jesus? No, it's not sufficient. Not as long as we're in this body. So what do I, what do I look for to save me ultimately from sin? Gillette Memorial Chapel and the people down there. That's what will save me. Death saves me. Death is a direct consequence of sin. And in this convoluted view, sin is only taken care of. I'm freed from it by death. Crazy. How many times have we heard, well, you, we're human. You can't, you can't, live without disobeying God, sinning. We sin all the time. Why? Well, we're human. That's Gnosticism. 
it has survived. And it's preached a lot. And it's given as the end of debate, end of discussion, we're human. Oh, okay. It also, it also is a bizarre doctrine of sin, putting it in the human body instead of locating it in my spirit, the moral nature. That's where the atonement is applied. He transforms my heart. And Paul said, I have this treasure, the presence of the Holy Spirit living within me in a broken jar, in a clay vessel, which means there will be failings, shortcomings, involuntary failings. But I can have, I can have a pure motive, love God with my whole heart. Jesus, Jesus said that. He said, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then Jesus went on and said, and I mean for this to only be fulfilled after you die and go to heaven. Well, it doesn't do me any good. It's here. Now, today, in this cesspool that we live in, that God said, I want you to love me with all your heart, you walk with me, and you keep Yourself, James said, unspotted from the world in this cesspool? Yes. Yes. That's a terrible doctrine. Even worse, Gnosticism taught, if you follow out the dualism, you don't have an incarnation. You don't have the second person of the Trinity clothing himself with sinful humanity. Spirit is good. Matter is evil. There can be no connection. So, what did they teach? There was no incarnation. There was no, as John said, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. You just X that out of the first chapter of John's gospel. Because spirit can't inhabit flesh. That's sin. So, there wasn't an incarnation. Jesus was not fully human. He therefore did not actually suffer temptation and go through life and... He did not suffer a real physical death, nor did he experience a real physical resurrection. A couple problems with that doctrine. Now, you might think, okay, it's all kind of in your head, and it's a lot of theory, but as long as we just preach Christ. Here's the problem if we switch back to the humans. This is one more element of Gnosticism. Since spirit and matter are separate, have nothing to do with each other, the one is pure and good, the other is wicked, unredeemable. Here's an outcome too. 
my spirit is fine no matter what I do in my body. I want that to just sink in. I can be a Christian and wallow in sin physically, but it has no effect on my spirit. I'm still good. Anybody ever run into any of that? If you're conscious, you have. It doesn't matter what we do. We love the Lord, and He loves us, and once a son, always a son. That's narcissism. Is it alive? Yeah. Jesus told John as he wrote the book of Revelation, one of the seven churches, he said, I have somewhat against, I think it was Smyrna, but I can't remember for sure. Because you allow that prophetess Jezebel to teach my servants to commit fornication. Another one, he said, I hate, Jesus said that. <gasps> he said, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's, I think, sufficiently established that that was a teacher of Gnosticism. Why did Jesus say, I hate it? Because it's fundamentally this teaching. It's a contradiction of what God told Adam and Eve. Sin, will, willful sin. Not, I'm not talking about mistakes. Willful, deliberate sin will separate you from God. That's what God told Adam and Eve. The devil said, no, it won't. And Eve and Adam bought that. How'd that turn out? That is the ancient lie that we still deal with. Sin won't separate you from God. God did not mean what he said when he said, you do this, you'll die. Oh, he didn't mean that. Now, this is hopeless. As far as me ever making it. <clears throat> There's a second heresy that after Gnosticism or at the same time that was being perpetrated. There were three really early ones. There were a massive amount of them. But I'm just looking at three that were deadly and very early. Gnosticism, deadly for the reasons I just tried to explain. The second one was spons uh, sponsored, I guess you'd say, or spawned by a guy named Marcion. And you don't have to remember that. Um, necessarily. <clears throat> but Marcion basically taught two gods. The God of the Old Testament, who was quite mean, very vindictive, slaughtered people by the billions. He's the one, he, so he's the mean God. And they don't believe, that he didn't teach, that that mean God, somewhere before the New Testament, got into a good Bible-believing church and, you know, went to an altar and an altar call and got saved and straightened up. Then he became Jesus. He was nice. Didn't teach that. It's two gods. There's the meanie in the Old Testament. And then that 
New Testament God is a new, different, second God, Jesus, whose whole motive is love. Okay? And a little quirk was that the Old Testament God, the Mimi, they used an old Greek word, demiurge. That Old Testament mean God is the creator of humanity. And so it makes Jesus, the nice God, really special because he came to rescue people he didn't have anything to do with. The mean God made them. Again, I hope no seminary professors listen to me, but this is general enough. So you have dual gods. Now, Marcion um, is still around. Marcionism. Egypt, some in Palestine, way up into um, centuries afterwards. And there's still, there's still a bishop somewhere, I think it's in Palestine, somewhere that obviously is not huge. But that theory is still around. Now, you might think, okay, why even mention that one? That doesn't have much to do with anything. How many people, how many people, even here, do we, without prejudice, but we question, man, alive, there's just bodies everywhere in the Old Testament. (laughs) You know? But Jesus, he was nice. We don't pay attention to the Old Testament anymore. How many people have said to me, can't even count? Well, I read the New Testament, but ah, the Old Testament, you know. And we also have a lot of people who love to take major portions or the whole Old Testament and say, because the ceremonial law doesn't apply anymore, the whole Old Testament really doesn't apply. I can go back just a year or two here to um, a couple that attended faithfully um, for a while until I, I preached a sermon on Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33, which says, in the day the righteous turns away from his righteousness and commits wickedness, in that day, he says, he'll die in his sins. Well, it's been maybe two years now. I've never seen them since. Bothered me. Nice couple. But they'd been taught, once you're saved, you cannot, don't care what you do, you cannot fall away or walk away. Or, of course, if you do, you weren't saved in the first place. But I preached out of the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't apply to us anymore. That's not true. Every single time Jesus, Paul, John, any of them, but just take Jesus. Every time Jesus said, it is written. He wasn't talking about the New Testament. There was no New Testament. He was quoting the Old. That testament is in force. Just the ceremonial 
flaws are gone. There's a third heresy that came along, and it's understandable. It's called Montanism. Montanism arose, and there were several others also. But they arose because of the early appearance of laxness in the church. The question was, they remember, the early church, especially the, in the second century, in the third century, into the early part of the fourth century, there were waves. It wasn't constant persecution, but there were waves of terrible persecution. One of the worst was the last, under the emperor Diocletian. And in those persecutions, much of it took the form of, you're a traitor as a Christian because you swear allegiance to another lord, not Caesar. But the way to get out of that, either have your business not taken away or killed or your whole family, house torn down, whatever, was to simply annually participate in the local sacrifice to the emperor. All you had to do was throw a pinch of incense or whatever into the fire, and you're okay. Many Christians faltered and recanted their faith. Then, rightly, grieved to death, sorry, they sought readmission to the church. Well, there was a group of people following a guy by the name of Montanus. And basically, Montanus was, I think you could say, the first wild-eyed charismatic. He claimed to speak in tongues when he got water baptized when he got converted. He also, he had a couple of women prophets that tagged along with him wherever he went. And he taught that the Holy Spirit still was giving truth. So it brought into question the finality and the finishedness of the Scripture. Ever heard of the apostolic, ever heard of ARM? Apostolic Restoration Movement or Reformation Movement, those two words. Ever heard of that? Let me ask you, anybody here ever heard of that? Let me see your hand. Okay. That's alive and well today. Claiming that all of the apostolic gifts, including, you know, raising the dead and all kinds of stuff, but including new truth, new revelation, new scripture, that the scripture then is not finished. That's... Check out Redding, California. That's alive and well. Well, they did, in a certain well-meaning sense, take the position that the church shouldn't readmit the people that lapsed, that fell away, that fainted and faltered under persecution. You shouldn't forgive them. There is no forgiveness for them. And you should not allow them back into the church. And the fact that some churches are doing it and some bishops are allowing it is watering down the church and we've got to stiffen up the moral guidelines. 
Now, that appears to be decent. There were some other. Donatus controversy was another one similar to that, where it seemed the rigorous people said, listen, we got to get back to the old ways, and we've got to quit being nice. There is no forgiveness. Here's another interesting thing that I wonder about, why people don't think. The, the, the doctrine swept, especially in the United States, I believe that it is a majority doctrine within Protestant evangelicalism. Again, that willful sin won't separate a believer from God. Why don't they ever go back and look at history? In the 200s and the 300s, listen to how I explain this, they were wrong. But what weren't they teaching? They were wrong when they said, you commit sin after you're baptized, there's no forgiveness for you. I don't know where in the world they came up with that. But post-baptismal sin, there was no forgiveness for it. Now, that's wrong. But they surely, why didn't somebody, as early as that started appearing, wander into some place and say, hey, wait a minute. My grandfather heard St. John preach. That's how close they still were to the apostolic age. My grandfather heard John preach, and he never taught that. But he also didn't teach, he didn't teach that sin wouldn't bother you. That you're still okay even if you do commit sin. That it won't separate you from God. There wasn't a soul that ever stepped forward and said, wait a minute. The Bible teaches and the apostles taught that once you're saved, you're always saved. Nobody said that. In fact, they went to an error. But no one considered that sin, post-baptismal sin, was okay. It was, you'll go to hell. One of the famous early church fathers, Tertullian, lawyer, great apologist, apologist meaning defender of the faith, he reluctantly came around to the position and he wrote, he's looked at as the author of the seven deadly sins. You could commit one of those after you got baptized, after you... So a lot of people postponed their baptism until their deathbed. So you could avoid post-baptismal sin because it wasn't forgivable. Tertullian really went weak in the knees. And he finally conceded that you could commit one of the seven deadly sins and have forgiveness, but that's it. Now, why am I giving all this? We'll close here by looking at the Apostles' Creed that I gave you. And I've got to cut things short. But there are the, the Apostles' Creed likely was as early, some think, as 150. And as it was added to, refined, clear up into the 500s. And maybe a bit further. So there were different forms of it. But the first line, 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Some good historians believe that that was intended to head off the teaching of Marcion that a demiurge, some lower god, created mankind, and that was the bad god, and that heresy. Then the second whole clause here, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living, the quick, and the dead. That whole paragraph speaks of what? Physical suffering, physical reality, physical birth, physical death, physical resurrection. That's clearly against the Gnostic notion that the body's evil, Jesus couldn't have been joined to a body, and he was only spirit. The teaching was that Jesus was just a phantom. He made himself appear as human, but he wasn't. Then a good major historian believes that the little phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, which is the third line from the bottom, is a shot at and a hedge against the montanists who said, there is no forgiveness for sin committed after you're baptized. Can't be forgiven. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, why go through all this? I'll probably wonder that when I go home. But there's several things that all of this says to me. Um, one, there's still a devil, and he hasn't quit. He's not retired. He's not semi-retired. He's not gotten feeble. He's on the job. One thing about him, we can say, he's very diligent. There's still a devil. There's still a conspiracy force, the likes of which we can't understand, against truth, wherever it is. Water it down, twist it, pervert it, cut it in half, take pieces out of it, but some way alter it so that it diminishes its power as the truth. There's still a devil. Second, of course, there's still a God. There's still a God who has guided his church through fire and water and blood, martyrdom, down through the ages. And I don't say this to you. I say it to me. Where in the world do I get the idea that we ought to have smooth sailing? And here's my problem. Again, I'm not beating you over the head. I'll have to remind myself of that tomorrow. Because I'll think, well, why did this happen? Why do I have to deal with that? How come this doesn't go, go smooth? Why, don't every, why doesn't everybody that I preach to get saved? Preach to them. 
before if I die. I've told them three times what it means to be saved. How come they haven't gotten saved? We're not in that kind of a world. I wish I could get that out of my head. The expectation that things we should just <laughs> we should just tell the wonderful story of Jesus and that the world would beat a path to our building wanting more. It's not that way. And if they put Jesus to death, why would we think it's unusual if they do that to us? We're worried now as we see encroaching anti-religious sentiment. We shouldn't be surprised. We have to just be girded with the truth for what God has allowed every other generation to go through. Why wouldn't he let us go through it? Here's the last point I want to make. There's always a great, 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 greater than we recognize fight over doctrine. I've been in the ministry for uh, a long time. I hate to tell you how long ago to start doing the math and realize I should have quit a couple years ago. Even in the ministry today, doctrine is in my seminary class of 40 graduates which for a seminary then was a good sized class 40 graduates two of us two of us had theology as our major you're going into the ministry and you don't know theology and you don't want to learn it and you don't care and you just take the bare minimum and that's it? What? It's like, eh, I'm going to be a doctor, but I, I didn't take anatomy. Anatomy is just, you know. It's absurd. It's absurd. I'm not going to take my car to someone and say, yeah, I never studied the internal combustion engine, but hey, yeah, I'll look at it. I'll work on it. I can tell you. I wouldn't do that for a minute. But my soul... I'll sit under preaching that is some kind of a mess. Ah, doctrine doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. Here's why. If this truth wasn't true, then it doesn't matter. There is hardly a case anywhere where belief does not always lead to behavior. As a man thinketh in his heart, Proverbs says, so is he. We live what we believe, what we really believe. That's why from day one, and we have to still today, fight the good fight, and as Jude said, that we are to earnestly, this King James, earnestly contend. Do you know what that word contend means? Anybody have any idea? It means fight. Yeah. 
In Acts 15, when they were getting off the track and they held a big church council, it says there had been much dispute. And the words, they were arguing. That's the apostles. They argued because it mattered. Doctrine matters. It matters then what I take in because it produces behavior. And behavior produces a record, produces character, and ultimately will be called into account at judgment. So doctrine matters. Let's close. We'll just read. I want to read together in unison the Apostles' Creed. Knowing, you have to kind of like history, I guess, but knowing that here we are, we're, we're millennia later, we're reading the same thing that Christians read together and affirmed and sometimes went to martyrdom because they wouldn't back off of it. Let's read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It seems right to me this morning that I want to close in prayer, but I also want to speak a benediction over the congregation today that we find thousands of years ago in the book of Numbers. And Pastor Dan did not know I was going to do this, but God kind of laid this on my heart. So I'm going to pray, say amen, and then I'm going to speak a benediction over us and turn us loose. Is that okay? So let's pray. Father in heaven, you're good. I'm grateful, Lord, for the opportunity this morning to close this sermon that Pastor Dan laid before us in prayer. I am so eternally grateful, Lord, for a man who has the recall that he has for history, but the love that he has for history and the ability to share it and, and, and clarify it to us as a congregation this morning as to why we should believe what we believe and that doctrine does matter. But more than that, we have a pastor who the reason why he shares this with us, Lord, is because of his love for you and his love for truth. I'm often reminded that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But also he told the disciples years and years and years ago, Lord, that he is going to send the spirit of truth to us. And I know sometimes these sermons are overwhelming for us because it's so hard to grab a hold of and hang on to and retain what we've learned this morning. But I do know this, Lord. I know the spirit of truth in Christians' hearts. The Holy Spirit of God will remind us of all the things that Jesus has taught us. So when you speak to us, Lord, I just pray that we're just obedient to you. Because you will faithfully speak to us and you faithfully kept this church together 
all these years that we might sit in this sanctuary on a Sunday morning in Gillette, Wyoming, and hear truth and have it confirmed to our hearts by your spirit. So help us to just be obedient to what you lay upon our hearts and help us to always be a congregation of one book. And that book is our Holy Bible that we hold this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to speak this over you. It's called a priestly blessing. That um, It says that in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is, this is how you are to bless the Israelites and say to them. So this morning I say this to all of us and all that are watching online. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. May we be a congregation of one book and may we go into this, into this community and to our families with hope in our hearts that we serve a faithful God. Amen? You're dismissed. Love you guys. Have a great day, everyone.